Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The big message for me, and one that I find that therapists find very encouraging, is that we are at a time in our science when we know that it's very beneficial to be with a safe other and especially one who is not there to use you in some way. If that's a genuine, safe relationship, your body will know it, and your patient's body, your client's body, can respond and heal itself. So it doesn't need necessarily a lot of medicine. It just needs to be long enough in a safe place to get out of defensiveness and move forward into something resembling restoration and healing. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, we're super psyched today to bring you guys everything you ever wanted to know about the neuropeptide oxytocin. <laughs> and if you think that you're not interested in oxytocin, you may be mistaken. It is it's a little chemical molecule in your brain that is responsible for all the good stuff. The feels, awe, the feeling that you get when you're in love, when you see that piece of art, when you are with your baby, when your baby looks at you, when your dog looks at you all those kinds of things. We have the incredible privilege of having a really in-depth conversation with Dr. Sue Carter today. She's the director of the Kensey Institute and professor of biology at Indiana University. She also has uh, held the position of professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and a whole bunch of other very impressive sounding things, all related to biology, ecology, ethology, psychology, she basically identifies kind of bordering between biology and psychology, not fitting neatly in either one in particular. She's authored over 275 articles, including five books. The most recent book, Attachment and Bonding, A New Synthesis, is out now. And basically, she's done a ton of lab work on the role of oxytocin and vasopressin in social bond formation. You might think about prairie voles. That was her. She's the one that kind of launched much of this. So today we are pleased to bring you the conversation that Sue Marriott, which is me, uh, co-host, had with Dr. Sue Carter. And by the way, she says right off the bat that she has been married to Steve Porges for 50 years. Listeners to our show will know and smile at this because Dr. Steve Porges is another just hero in the field that has changed a lot of our practices and the way that we think of relational behavior. 
Oh, and one last thing. I did incorporate listener questions into this conversation. They're both kind of embedded in the conversation. She had all the questions before we started, and we kind of worked them in. And then we specifically asked a few at the very end. So if you sent in questions, know that that definitely informed our conversation. And without further ado, I bring you Dr. Sue Carter. I am so delighted to welcome you, Dr. Carter, to Therapist Uncensored. Hi, Sue. It's a pleasure to be here. I am extremely happy to see people interested in oxytocin. It's pretty much my life's work. I began to study it when my first son was born exactly 40 years ago, and I was given oxytocin, and I asked only one question, what's this doing to the baby? And I found not only had that question not been asked, but nobody had even bothered to ask what happens to a mother when she gets extra oxytocin. So I became probably increasingly with time more obsessed by trying to answer my own questions about oxytocin and how it worked. My background is biology. I was originally a behavioral biologist. I began to study neuroscience and the neuroscience of behavior really at the kind of dawn of that work in about 1970, the same year that Steve Borges and I were married. I've been an academic off and on throughout my entire career. I have mostly worked at this intersection between psychology and biology, so I perhaps don't fit well into either category. But it's a very exciting time to be trying to understand the biology of behavior. And I have to apologize before we start by saying that many of the questions that you have, I have too, and I can't answer them because the research is so insufficient. But it's growing. There are 28,000 articles on PubMed. When you open, just put in the word oxytocin. So I'm not alone anymore. In the beginning, I was out there all by myself. And now there are thousands, tens of thousands of scientists all over the world trying to understand the mysteries and the biology of this amazing system. What I thought was maybe we could jump right in. We're going to be talking about, I call it my favorite neuropeptide. But could you tell us what oxytocin is to launch us? Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how oxytocin came to be what I think is the most important hormone in our whole battery of biochemical processes. Oxytocin is very old. It's been around between 150 to 100 million years. But it's modern in the sense that its precursors, the things that led up to it, seem to have appeared about 600 million years ago. Now, these are unimaginable periods of time. But they're time during which life on Earth evolved. And we first evolved a kind of set of simple chemical events, processes, which then were modified by, we presume, evolution to give us protective molecules that, as we got to the point of being mammals, allowed us to be both social and to protect ourselves at the same time. So this is a complicated task. How can you take care of others 
and yourself. And the body refined took these old molecules that it had been evolving, refining, developing for this 600 million years. And in this most modern version of the story, began to create a molecule that allowed connection, that allowed us to be social and connect with others. It's presumed that this all started in mammals at least, at the same time that we began to take care of our babies. First by gestating them, by letting them grow intrauterine inside of a mother, to feed them right after they were born, to give them nurture, and also to be sure that we in some way connected to the offspring so that we would take care of it. Oxytocin is at the very center of that story. It's the molecule that allowed us to give birth to our big-headed babies. Its most direct effect was to permit milk made by the mother to be delivered to the baby, and then, as I've said, to cause the mother and the baby eventually to bond to each other. There's strong science for all of those things. Then, suddenly, over that 100 to 150 million year period, oxytocin took on lots of other positions and jobs in our body. It began to regulate stress. It began to tie sociality to stress so that we went to others when we needed help. Yeah, no, that is an incredible story. And you're right, what a complicated job to both nurture and grow, yet at the same time to protect the unit or to protect the baby, which is a whole different set of behaviors. It's a set of behaviors that aren't always compatible. And occasionally you'll see in animals at least mistakes. Animals will, in a sense, attack their own offspring. Hamsters are known for actually using their extra babies as food. They have a very short gestation, only 16 days, and it looks like they don't go through the kind of last trimester of development when they have these little premature offspring, which if it's a bad year, they will cannibalize. But most mammals don't do that. In fact, that's the extreme example. Well, it makes me actually think of examples where the turtle adopts the bear or, you know what I mean? Like those cross-species connections. <laughs> well, we have to be sure we understand that this is an internal system and it can be used in many ways. It's kind of a set of hardware able to be accessed by a lot of other software. The hard wiring part of this itself can be modified, so it's not really too fixed, it's variable. And in fact, that's one of oxytocin's, probably one of its primary talents, is that it can be changed by experience. And that's such an important part of this. We're gonna to begin to talk at some point about clinical application. But I think about adoption and particularly adopting children that have not had a nurturing environment initially, so that they miss that window of what would normally be hopefully a good enough bond. So then they don't naturally get the turn towards impulse from that. They don't get the pleasure from that in the same way. What's so nice about thinking about complex problems like adoption or developing new relationships 
if we go beneath the surface and think about them in terms of physiology, we start to come up with novel ways of looking at what we consider very serious human problems. So let's say children taken out of orphanages in Europe, it was common in Romania, for example, as you may know, for children to be essentially sold to Western families. And those babies were at risk because they didn't have consistent caretaking of any kind. Not only did they not have their own mother who had been taken away from them at birth, but even the people taking care of them were deliberately rotated so they wouldn't attach to the babies. Those babies were definitely a lot for parents who adopted them with all good intention. Very great deal of work was needed and patience on the part of the parents. Some cases, these examples weren't very successful. But the system that was in that case most disturbed was the baby system. You can also have cases, sort of clinical cases, where mothers, they are not able to mother because their systems aren't aligned. They may be in a state of fear. They may be themselves physiologically unable to show attachment. We have a very sophisticated, almost foolproof system that works under what we might consider natural conditions and works pretty well even when things are not ideal. So humans attach to adopted babies. They attach to other humans that aren't their own babies. They attach to pets. <laughs> pets are wonderful because ideally, at least, they're going to give you back unconditional love where humans, it's a little bit unpredictable what you'll get when you're interacting with another human. Anyway, we have a wonderful system. It's based on this old, old hormone. It's been used and reused for many purposes. So it's part of the immune system. Oxytocin is part of the autonomic nervous system. It plays a role in food intake. There just isn't anything that I know of where there hasn't been some kind of use and reuse of this molecule. That's incredible. And the tone in which you're speaking of it already is bringing me hope because sometimes when you read about neuroscience and the power of neglect and trauma, the news is so just painful and so bad in some ways as far as the effect on our bodies. But right off the bat, you're already talking about it being malleable and pretty adaptive. Extremely adaptive. We wouldn't be here. You and I wouldn't be having this conversation if we didn't have oxytocin. First, we wouldn't have been able to be born historically. Now you can be born lots of ways. You can leave the mother more than just through the vaginal canal. But we wouldn't have had someone take care of our ancestors. It just goes on and on. But it had to be adaptive because the world has always been full of challenges. We think sometimes we're living in the most challenging time ever and maybe that's true. Right now, maybe. <laughs> but we are adapting. Mothers are adapting. I saw a news article this week about mothers who were COVID positive who were being allowed to nurse their babies. At first, they thought this was maybe too dangerous. But in fact, it doesn't seem to be 
from the baby's point of view. And being a lactating mother would give that woman a different physiology, potentially a very protective physiology to protect her from a virus. So if you look at this, no matter which way, you can keep turning this molecule and its functions, and you always find something that worked. That's evolution's best quality. It always gives you something that's functional under at least one set of circumstances. It's just a tall order. That is a lot of things that it needs to do. But it's fascinating that it's associated, it sounds like, with most of the systems in the body. Well, first, it's a molecule that's made, at least in mammals, it's made in the brain, in the hypothalamus, in the, one of the oldest parts of the brain. And it works in the brain on very special receptors that are located in the areas that regulate the autonomic nervous system, as I mentioned. So that's a big connection. Uh, oxytocin plays really a major role in regulating the parasympathetic nervous system and the vagus and the ventral vagal complex that Dr. Stephen Forges talks about is regulated almost certainly by oxytocin. So they're one system, even though they evolve separately, they've somehow joined up in a kind of partnership that's helped us survive as a species and made us incredibly adaptive. Can you describe, just to put it in context, because it sounds wonderful, you know, I want to date oxytocin, right? <laughs> it's, like, it's a good one. I always say it's my favorite. But in the context, though, too, if we just do a slightly wider view of norepinephrine and cortisol and some of the other chemicals that are flowing, dopamine, I don't know if that's too complicated of a thing, but kind of how they go together. You brought up two kind of separable processes. One is the management of challenge stress hormones. The major stress hormone in the body is called CRF, corticotropin-releasing factor. This is another really ancient molecule. Its ancestors also started back at the beginning of time, in a sense, about this 600 million year ago period. And there's a second molecule that's even more important to the oxytocin story, and that's called vasopressin. Now, vasopressin, it's not the ancestor of oxytocin, but they both came out of a common ancient molecule, which your audience could care less about, probably called vasopressin. <laughs> not everybody. We've got some real nerds on this show that really love it all. So, but anyway, go ahead. So imagine that we're crawling out of the primordial goo or water even. We have a very special problem. We have to live on dry land. And the first problem is to retain or keep water inside of ourselves. Suppose we're just the simplest possible organism you can imagine, maybe even a single cell. So some of these creations have within them very good capacity to retain water. That creature, let's imagine if we take the classical evolution point of view, and that creature has evolved, became more and more complex, and started to have more jobs to do, not just to stay alive, but also to reproduce. Then we sort of zoom forward, as I've said, about 600 million years, 
to modern times, and we have creatures that have to manage not just survival and reproduction, but also the complexity of a very large body with a big brain, complex nervous system, and so forth. Now, oxytocin-like molecules were there in the beginning of this story, and nature just kept tweaking them, and especially their receptors. They don't work by themselves. They work on larger molecules that are sitting mostly on cell membranes. And so the oxytocin goes up to that membrane, sort of knocks on the door, attaches itself in some way to a receptor. And that receptor sends a message to the cell nucleus about what to do next. So you can use this kind of simple model with a few basic molecules, which we'll come back to your question in a second, to do an infinite number of tasks. Now, the one that's most interesting to most therapists, frankly, is the task of allowing us to be social or at least not excessively defensive. So remember, everything started with sort of defending our cell membranes and staying alive. And now we've come through this incredibly long period of time to a point that we have a lot more interesting and complicated things to do, like talk or build buildings or create. Or create, yeah. Yeah, to be creative. How are we going to do that? Well, we, we are doing that because we have a huge brain. And that brain required a very special environment. That's where the nurturing of the baby inside the mom was important. Mammals have big brains. That's where getting then outside of the body, not too big, not so large that you can't be born, but at a state of sort of immaturity was necessary for most creatures. There are some that are pretty much born fully ready to take care of themselves, but most mammals depend on mom and her milk almost by definition. That's what mammalia means. We are those creatures that drink our mother's milk. So we had this balancing act that took a very long time to sculpt and in fact came out in many forms. So if you look at the various mammals on Earth, you see all kinds of variations from egg-laying mammals to mammals like elephants that have huge babies and take care of those babies for many months or years. Somehow, we sort of put together, under the surface of all of that, a capacity of recognition of other and acceptance of others. So that positive sociality that humans value so much is coming out of this basic old biology. Now, I'm only telling you about oxytocin and this related molecule, vasopressin, for the first few minutes, and then we can answer your dopamine, norepinephrine, and other kinds of questions if you want. But in the process of this development of sort of the ideal mammal, we did not throw away the old molecules. We kept them. One of them, called vasopressin, is especially important because that molecule, which was originally a water retention molecule, became part of our defense system in the most general way. 
it's part of the system that allows us to show hypervigilance, aggression, and just generally reacting to the environment in a self-defensive manner. But that doesn't give you a complete social system. That's only protecting one of us, me, in the case of that model. But if I want to be we, or I want to be involved with the others, I have to have some mechanism inside of my physiology to allow that to happen. And I think we pretty much understand that that's where oxytocin came into human evolution or into the evolution of mammals and then humans. There are other molecules you mentioned, like dopamine. Well, oxytocin and dopamine are partners. They work together. Dopamine and oxytocin are sort of the ultimate reward cocktail inside the body. Norepinephrine, epinephrine are actually part of the dopamine scheme. So it's there are old molecules that we understand that play a role in all aspects of human behavior. And usually those molecules are part of what became ultimately our drug, our battery of, of pharmacology and drugs. Those things like so-called monoamines, serotonin being the one you know the most about. So those kinds of molecules modulate oxytocin. I'm not sure if oxytocin modulates them. I think they're older and they work to sort of lay down the spaces upon which oxytocin can work. The interesting one, the one I'm most interested in personally right now, trying to figure this part of the puzzle out, is how our stress responses got tied to oxytocin. So let me tell you that oxytocin is probably a major stress coping molecule most of the time, but not always. And that makes it a very difficult molecule to turn into a drug, as you can imagine. It has only one function, that's great. But once something has multiple functions, yeah, like two sides of the sword. <laughs> Many of our listeners are familiar with Dr. Steve Porges' work on polyvagal. So we talked about social engagement and oxytocin. When I when I teach it, it's always, you know, it's usually like oxytocin, you know, <laughs> yay. And then as we drop down, there's this stress system of keeping us safe. And then that goes even further down than that. But you said something about uh, defense and how that, you know, even to keep ourselves protected, and so I think you're right. Clinically, what we're most interested in is moving from being defended from a chemical standpoint, even like the defense system being activated. I'm saying it in a weird way, but like to be able to use the molecules that help us disarm and help us open back up. Yeah. So we have a set of molecules and oxytocin's one of them that can allow us to give up our defenses. And that is probably the reason we exist as a species, because we can do that. But it's not easy. And we're always kind of on a knife's edge, balancing between defending ourselves and defending a larger collective. It could be a family, could be friends, partners, whatever. And interacting in a positive way with those that are part of our inner group, and possibly rejecting or trying to avoid those who we fear. So I like when I talk about this 
often will use words like love and fear. Love being kind of a general metaphor for biological processes that the body has access to under ideal conditions that allow us to, to have growth, restoration, to allow bigger things like creativity to exist. All of those depend on us giving up our defensive states long enough to nurture others, including our offspring, and to nurture our species. We're very good at kind of including others inside of our circles of attachment because that system, that oxytocin-based system, is designed to do that. It's designed to make us attach. So in fact, we will attach to animals. We will attach to babies that are not our own. We will attach to other people that for whom we there's no real reason that we're making those relationships. We're doing it because our bodily state seeks other, wants other, and is rewarded by being with them. So it's a beautifully designed system. It's been refined by hundreds of millions of years of evolution, and it comes in several forms. There are also some extremely interesting sex differences that aren't really easy to understand, but I think are going to be important to our greater understanding of how oxytocin, vasopressin, and those kinds of molecules work. One of the things you made me think about, again, I'm thinking about clinical application, is for a while I worked in chemical dependency treatment, and the population specifically were moms who had had their children removed because of their substance use. And to engage the protective system of the parent back to the baby and to get them into back into that protective thing, like once they lose the baby, then we really have lost them as far as like their being able to engage them in treatment and stuff. So we were able to use that parental relationship. The protectiveness will naturally come on board again when they have access and when there's proximity and there's that bond. People are always asking me what's the best way to release oxytocin. Usually it's to be with a safe other, but babies have particularly good features for making us feel that they're safe. They are safe usually. They're not going to hurt us. And they also have this positive sort of rewarding look to them. And the same is true of young animals. Most healthy people find the look of a puppy to be sort of irresistible. So we've got a a really beautifully engineered system to attach, to attach to those things around us that are safe to attach to. Where it gets tricky is when that which is we're attaching to is not fully safe. It may be partially safe and partially dangerous. This would be the intimate relationships that, that sort of go wrong. You see individuals who want to be in love, want to have loving relationships, but they've had bad experiences. They've either been neglected or abused. And their body has retracted, probably. We know from the few kinds of endocrine studies that have been done in clinical populations that, for the most part, abuse or early life stress is going to 
sort of downregulate the oxytocin systems. And you can see that coming early in life, trying to protect the baby, getting that baby lined up as a best guess of what's going to happen next. And the only choice we have is to provide more safety. You can't talk yourself out of being defensive very easily. You have to use our understanding of deep biology to inform us about how to manage people and to let them manage themselves, of course. And it's the million-dollar question, right, is how do we use our knowledge of this? Like what are sort of conscious behaviors, activities? Babies is a great example. I'm especially thinking from an attachment standpoint, sometimes we have learned to shut down or be very vigilant. So then we're missing some of this, what we could be getting with the oxytocin. How do we move back into that open-hearted place of love versus fear? I think the magic word is safety, real safety. You can't have fake safety because that's unpredictable. And so children raised in a kind of environment of consistency and warmth, that may or may not be their biological parent. Not everybody has the privilege of having a perfect mother or perfect father. That's where our big brains, our cognition comes in. We have to help this state regulation to occur and allow an appraisal, if you will, mm -hmm. of what's real threat and what's not. And sometimes that maturity is on our side as the brain gets more mature, it's less reflexive and more able to assess the reality, if you will. But the biggest problem, as far as I can see, in human behavior is understanding this sort of knife's edge between being prepared to have a good, safe, and positive, productive relationship versus protecting yourself from relationships that are damaging or outright mm -hmm. disastrous. And some people go into such a protective mode that they never are able to form good new relationships. And you can't fool Mother Nature. She right. knows enough to know when to try to protect herself. I love you saying real safety. And that feels so meaningful to me because you know, I'm imagining the mother with a fake smile. It's like the baby knows right away. You know, Alan Shore talks a lot about right brain experience. And it's kind of like you're saying, you can't convince someone that you're safe. I'm asking, does this ring true to you? That it's more the muscles in your face, the tone of voice. Prosody. Prosody, thank you. <laughs> Rate of speech. So the body is designed, again, by this ancient sculpturing based on and developing what we, in this family at least, what Dr. Porges likes to call social engagement system. That system is very much influenced by oxytocin. But if you give oxytocin to a person who is in a situation of danger, and this has unfortunately kind of accidentally been done in a number of experiments, those individuals may misperceive the environment. They may even misperceive cues of safety as cues of danger. And exactly how that happens, I can't be sure yet, but I think the general thinking out of animal research and human research is 
that that system, again, that I've talked about, this ancient peptide system with oxytocin and vasopressin and a bunch of other molecules, it's tunable, it's adjustable, but it will fall back to what the larger brain says to it about the context. What kind of a world are you living in? So right now, I'll give you a simple example. People who are frightened of COVID are not engaging in any kind of social behavior except with safe individuals. So COVID's kind of a metaphor for danger. If you don't have it, you're not in danger, and we really don't know exactly who's dangerous and who's not because it's there before we're aware even the person carrying the virus is aware. So our body is responding to its history, and its history may say, oh, gee, this is nothing. I've heard this before. I don't believe it. Or it may be some outside source, uh, some kind of politics come in, and they say, oh, don't worry. Everything's fine, but the danger is still there, and the body still has to manage the physiology of what's happening. So it's always a kind of trade-off between a larger appreciation and these much more ancient basic systems. And unfortunately, when things get rough, we usually fall back to the old systems and use those. And luckily, oxytocin, it's modern, but it's still one of the older physiological processes in our body, and it can protect us. It can even allow us to be brave, especially if we think there's a strong social environment there to help protect us. Is that kind of beginning to talk about the paradox? Well, the problem is that when we start to try to turn a natural molecule like oxytocin into a medicine, we have to appreciate that some of its features are designed for multiple purposes, as I've explained. And so if you overdose on oxytocin, if you're a healthy person, it's probably close to impossible to do that. But nobody's totally healthy. All of us have a history of trauma. All of us have histories of things we're afraid of and terrors. Mm -hmm. And so if our body misreads that molecule, especially one from outside, it may get the exact opposite signal. It may get the defense signal. Instead of getting a kind of everything's great, so people have worried with oxytocin, there's a literature about whether it makes you gullible, therefore it's dangerous. Well, that's probably not the main danger. The main danger is that in inappropriate situations, it may make you defensive. So your body, when it's producing it, for the most part, does it right. It rarely makes a mistake. But if you start to do medical treatments, and some of the questions your readers wrote in were, where can I get some oxytocin? Can I buy it? <laughs> Nasal spray, yeah. <laughs> put it in the water. <laughs> yeah, definitely don't need to put it in the water. It wouldn't last there very long. It's, it's a very fragile molecule. But what you do need to be cautious about, and this applies to all medicine, is that Medicines are designed on basic biological systems. Oxytocin, vasopressin, that's a system. It's a system very well-tuned to keep us alive and to let us reproduce and be social. Two, the two laws of nature. 
But if we start to mess with it, mess with Mother Nature, we are also running the risk that we will get the other side of the system activated. And at this point, we don't know too much about it. I, I shouldn't make it sound too dangerous because in truth, oxytocin is probably a very safe molecule compared to most drugs that are out there. I mean, it's safer than ibuprofen, <laughs> okay? It's not gonna destroy your kidney, but it has a complex set of functions and we haven't carefully studied those. This idea of giving oxytocin, most of that work started in 2005 and it has become a kind of growth industry as people look for ways to use oxytocin to solve especially psychological problems. And it goes very well, as I've said, if the person's healthy. And actually, interestingly, it's a lot like COVID, it seems to work quite well when you're young. You don't have nearly as many of these paradoxical effects in young people. So it's been used, for example, in autism. And for the most part, it either does good or no harm. Okay, so I don't think it's dangerous there, and I don't totally understand why, as we get older, it gets more complicated. But I think the sex steroid hormones come into the story, estrogen and testosterone, and they start to tune that system as well. Yes, and that brings us to the gender difference. But before we do that, if I could restate, I think what you're saying, that part of the paradox of oxytocin is that it's not just the love, it's not just the bonding hormone, that it makes us appraise a situation in a much more careful way. And many times that means that it opens our heart and it promotes trust. But if we have an experience or if it hits us in a way that feels like danger, then it would aggravate our defensiveness. Is that right? You've stated it precisely the way I see it. Now, remember, we're putting together a puzzle as we speak, a big puzzle that started about 20 years ago of trying to piece together out of various kinds of clinical studies and research studies how this molecule's working. And every day, all I have to do is look on PubMed Central, or PubMed, it's like Google for science nerds, right? You yes, put right. in there the word oxytocin, you're going to get over 27,000 articles to choose from. And then if you cross that with something like stress, you'll get, again, thousands. Each of those was almost all the research has been designed independent of any larger goal. So people just get interested in the subject. They run studies. These are coming now from all over the world. It used to be pretty much in the English-speaking dominated science. Now it's not. It's from everywhere. I'm very encouraged by the fact that I think we can understand oxytocin, and I think we can maximize the body's production of it, and I think we can avoid some of these so-called side effects by a deeper understanding of how it works and where it works. But this is where science is our friend. Mm-hmm. It's definitely our friend because oxytocin is not just working on behavior. It's healing wounds. It's preventing probably certain kinds of cancers. 
that's complicated because it's a growth molecule. So some of the kinds of cancers like prostate cancer and not sure about ovarian cancer, breast cancer, but some of those cancers, it may feed the cancer. So we have to be careful. But it's still in its natural form. It's probably doing the right thing. It's being adjusted. So rather than sort of thinking of quick fixes and nasal sprays and things like that, I'm thinking about a clinical application and I'm imagining our listeners so that if you're wanting to increase or facilitate your own production of oxytocin or someone close to you, that you said the key word is safety. And so one of the things that that tells me is like if you're in a fight, that you don't rush to repair because they're going to be able to tell that really you just want to get along. It's almost like what I really need to do is to actually get myself to be safer and get my oxytocin system back on. And then I'm going to be able to effectively parent or partner or whatever the thing is. Right. This is really important. The system, our social intuition brain It looks at the world in very objective ways. As you've said, you can't fake a smile, really. You can't fake real feelings for other people because the other individuals, if they're healthy, will recognize those signs accurately. But oxytocin given to people, in fact, does seem to increase their perception of positive stimuli. Again, I keep saying healthy people, and I have to use that caveat because the data that are coming out from using intranasal oxytocin seem to fall into two categories. Healthy people, you can do all kinds of apparently magical things. You make people feel good for a while and so forth. Unhealthy people, different kinds of clinical syndromes may come out differently. This is such a new literature, it's hard to say what it means. Do you mean like people who might struggle with a personality disorder or? Something like borderline personality disorder. I think I'll have to go back and dig into this literature, so I don't want the audience to think I'm giving you the facts, I'm just remembering. But Mm -hmm. I think that some cases, borderline individuals had very low oxytocin, but I think there were other studies where it looked rather high. And because these are separate studies and separate individuals, we don't know if there's one pattern here, and we also don't know what they meant by borderline. And, you know, there's a tendency when you're doing research to go out and find a bunch of people and call them what you want them to be. You need them to be for your study, yes. (laughs) But I would just say that individuals with a history of trauma Others with them, if they're going to use any of these kinds of aids to help them move forward, the the most important thing is to have a safe social kind of foundation or network Mm -hmm. so that if you get a feeling that's paradoxical, you feel afraid, you have a place to kind of come back to. So again, the, the big message for me, and one that I find that therapists find very encouraging is that we are at a time in our science when we know that it's very beneficial to be with a safe other, and especially one who is not there to use you in some way. If that's a genuine, safe relationship, your body will know it, and your patient's body 
your client's body can respond and heal itself. So it doesn't need necessarily a lot of medicine. It just needs to be long enough in a safe place to get out of defensiveness and move forward into something resembling restoration and healing. And on that note, we need to take a quick pause to talk about how you might get your own oxytocin. Hey, quick break here to just say that if you are enjoying this conversation about oxytocin and relating and connecting and all the good feels that come from love, you may be wondering about that in your own life. And if you are interested in doing your own therapy, having your own therapist, then we have you covered. We've checked this organization out. It's called BetterHelp. If you're interested in couples, if you are kind of have the COVID depression, as I say, if you know that you have your own work to do and you've been putting it off, now's a great time to call them. I would just look up betterhelp.com backslash therapist uncensored. That's going to get you 10% off. But basically the process is you go through, you answer a bunch of questions about yourself. That's how they match you with the right therapist. And if for any reason you're unhappy with your therapist, well, you can change. They're going to provide online care, text support, phone support, Basically, just you'll be signing up to have your own therapist. So I hope you check it out. Betterhelp.com backslash therapist uncensored. All right, back to the show. So we've been referencing testosterone and estrogen and gender differences. You know, I know that's a really tough conversation related to gender not being X and O, you know, a non-binary process. But can you speak to us some about what you are learning about the differences with oxytocin related to estrogen and testosterone? Well, first I have to say I spent five years directing McKinsey Institute. And during that time, I had a wonderful experiences learning about what was going on in the world. And a lot is going on in a rather short period of time. But if you look back to the original work by Kinsey, he described gender as a spectrum. He was a very bright man, and he opened his eyes to what was really happening in the world. It was never simply there were two very well-defined differences, male and female. There were always, there was always a spectrum at the behavioral level, and that behavioral level we now think, has at least a component that's based on steroids that come from the gonads, but also the adrenal gland, and also they're even made in the brain. Now, we're living in such interesting times, and one of the things that I didn't get to do at Kinsey that I wish I had been able to, was to study the experiences of people going through sex change or reassignment or just coping with their gender issues. All of that has been handled mainly at the behavioral level. And I discovered to my complete shock, I don't know if this has changed, there were a few centers doing really beautiful work to help people, but a lot of people who had gender dysphoria were taking it in their own hands to find the right kinds of hormonal therapy. So one of the most famous, I won't use the name, but one of the most famous trans females in the world, I talked to her, I said, where do you get your hormones? 
She said, from my general practitioner. I said, your general practitioner? And how many people has he helped go through a sex reassignment? And she said, just me. So what he did was treat her as if she were in menopause. Mm -hmm. So she had been living as a male and she had two children. And when she decided that she was misassigned, she decided to take estrogen. Now, the estrogen she took was designed for postmenopausal women. We have no idea what that did or didn't do to a body that had an XY chromosome pattern. So to me, this is one of the really un, unattended to issues around sexuality and gender that could have been addressed, but there was no organized plan. First, can you imagine the federal government saying, hey, let's do some gender reassignment and see what happens? You know, that's not, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. No one wants to experiment on humans, especially if something as, as intimate and complex as gender. All that said, there are studies, a few, mostly around menopause in women, that show that indeed estrogen postmenopausally did increase oxytocin, at least blood levels. And it also seems to help people go through a transition from very high levels of estrogen premenopausally to postmenopausal low levels. The ones that I think are most interesting and can be tragic are people who have to have their ovaries removed for some reason and go sort of cold turkey. And so when you go through menopause, there's a, it's a gradual process. It can take really about five to 10 years. But if for some reason the ovary is not functioning or it's cancerous or whatever, they may pull it out. And in those cases, sometimes because there's fear of estrogen, which is a very powerful molecule, the person may wind up getting extra estrogen or not. And in those who don't, there's a pretty drastic hormone withdrawal experience. If oxytocin potentially could be used in that setting, but as far as I know, no one's systematically done that too. And the reason is that, as, that oxytocin can cause the growth of certain kinds of cancers itself. Mm -hmm. So you're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. Everything about gender, everything about sex differences is complicated and almost, as we speak, almost unknown. You'd think by now we know a lot. And I can tell you that the number of facts is very, very small. And then to extend those facts, to ask about the actions on oxytocin, the literature is so thin that it's hardly worth discussing. But the animal work would suggest there is a relationship and it simply needs to be studied very carefully. I had heard that fathers who sleep with their babies have a reduction in testosterone and an increase in oxytocin. There is some data that I don't think they necessarily have to sleep with the baby. They just have to be deeply engaged with the baby because there are a lot of reasons you might or might not want the father to sleep with the baby, including the fact that it it might, if it's a very newborn baby, it probably wants to eat milk from mommy. 
But yes, a couple of studies have shown that. The effect was not very big. So I wouldn't say that men with newborn babies need to worry that they're being demasculinized. This was a small, pretty small effect, and some people, when they tried to replicate it, they couldn't, so it's what they call controversial. But there's yeah. probably something going on there, a little bit of de reduction of the androgens. Androgens, by the way, I forgot to mention this, it's very important. Androgens play a big role in vasopressins. So vasopressin is, in animals, very androgen dependent. I'm not even sure if this has been studied in humans. You'd say, oh, how, how could it not be? But we just don't know things. And vasopressin itself is made in an axis in the brain that regulates defensiveness and vigilance. As I told you, it's a really ancient molecule. It's a precursor of 600 million years. It probably first appeared in its current form about 200 and 250 million years ago. Still a long time. And when you mention the axis, do you mean the HPA axis? The hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal? Is it connected to the HPA axis? Yes, yes, oxytocin? yes. yes. Vasopressin you could consider to be a stress hormone. And is it like a piston? Like if you have oxytocin, your vasosuppressin is down. Do they work that way or no? No, they don't work like pistons, unfortunately. What they do is they work together as partners. And sometimes, like in pair bonding, you need both oxytocin and vasopressin to form a strong pair bond. And that makes sense. The pair bond is more than just falling in love. It's also defending the other parts of your nervous system or saying, oh, I really care for this person. I don't want to share him or her with someone else. Or I care about this baby. And I, it's my job as a parent to protect that baby. So that can, it's a relationship. The parent especially is a very interesting relationship because Again, you have to love and defend. You have to overcome your own fears to be a good parent. I really like thinking of that in partnership and kind of context dependent. By the way, thank you very much to the audience. I put out just one question about people's questions of oxytocin and I got so many. This is just a few of them actually. I got some in my inbox. But I've read them all, and I've, we've incorporated many, many of them into our conversation. But I thought we could just hit just a few more. Janie asked about a self-compassion meditation, and that she feels like she can literally feel something when she puts her hand on her heart. And the question is, has healing touch from oneself been associated with the release of oxytocin? Can we turn this on by ourselves? Off the top of my head, I can't think of a study, but I think it's plausible. Okay, because if you have some sense of compassion for yourself, this allows you to drop some of the defenses. A lot of our defenses are inside of us. They're about our history. They're about our shame and blame. They're things that really aren't real at all in the sense of being in the here and now, but act on us to keep us constantly defensive. Oxytocin seems to be pretty good in, again, moderately healthy people, okay? 
if I can't speak to what's going on when you get mm -hmm. into mental, serious mental illness, mm -hmm. that's a mm -hmm. whole other world. Right. Well, it makes me even think about like loving kindness meditations, but also even like the feeling of awe, like looking at art or nature. Thank you. Yeah, we did two studies of those. They aren't published yet. The loving kindness meditation, which we did at Spirit Rock, a friend of mine, Jim Harris, who's a psychiatrist, did this work, had a very lovely outcome, frankly, except we, we all know we didn't have a proper control. I don't know what the control would be, but about two-thirds of the people had higher oxytocin after four and a half days of that kind of rather intense meditation. Mm. Another third either didn't change or had a slight drop. So that was really encouraging. And I would love to redo that study if any of your audience has some, some spent spare change and wants to help us fund a second study. I would love to do that. I think with regard to the sense of awe, I've seen that described as moral elevation. And like you, I thought, boy, this is a perfect metaphor for studying when oxytocin might be released. The study we did was done in the South. It was a small study and it was all women. A third of them shown a video, it was kind of a compassion video, showed a pretty nice increase in oxytocin within minutes. It only lasted a few minutes and it was a short video, but one can easily imagine trying to design a world in which we had more opportunities to feel that sense of moral elevation because for some people it makes them cry and I have no data to support this, but I think that tears are in part regulated by oxytocin because they're little muscles in the lacrimal glands and there's prolactin also known, which plays a role in breastfeeding. Prolactin plays a role in, in tears. So I am willing to guess that if we did that, we'd, I'd like to have that study done again, too. It's also not yet published. I hope it will be soon. But we needed a more powerful stimulus. Personally, something like songs like Hallelujah. They give you that good feeling. And I think people have known this for a long time, mm -hmm. that you could create bonding by certain kinds of stimuli, especially musical stimuli and put people into an, a more open state in which they could then move out of their mood states, move into more positive experiences, and form new relationships. So I think our culture has gotten a little meager, our culture. We don't have as many of these sorts of old-fashioned come-togetherness sorts of experiences, especially right now. Nobody's allowed to come together with anybody who's trying to stay alive. So I'm not encouraging that. But when the time comes, which will be soon, I hope we can go back to appreciating how much we can benefit from other people. Because as I've said, I could go through a litany of, of dozens, more hundreds of studies that show that oxytocin heals. So in animals, very controlled studies, you can heal wounds, you can heal burns, you can heal diseases. So it's sort of the perfect 
molecule except that it needs to come from inside our body. That's why therapists love this message because they can be part of that partnership to allow the body to heal itself. So the question of like putting your hand on your heart and having self-compassion, it actually goes right back to what you said earlier, which was it's about safety. And sometimes we cannot be very safe for ourselves and we can be so horrible to ourselves. But when we're in that state where we're actually intentionally being compassionate, then we have the key element, which is safety. And we probably there's parts of us that can perceive that, if you will. You're also addressing something that several of the questions had to do with, can you overdose? Is it like an opiate? Can you use it dysfunctionally to avoid problems in a relationship, you know, compulsive masturbation or being able to do things to try to exploit it, but that it goes bad, basically, is some of the questions. Can you OD on this? Well, this always comes back to understanding the natural history of the molecule. So you can mess up just about anything in the body. I mean, sugar is good, too much sugar is bad. Even fat we're learning is good, too much fat in our diet is bad. Well, this is the same with all natural molecules. They are designed to work on receptors. Those receptors are sensitive to how much of the molecules there and how long it's been there. Think of it like the sound, the fibers in the ear that allow us to hear a sound. If I say, ah, uh, I'm not conveying anything. I have to use variation to get the appropriate message and to let your nervous system share what I know. So now the hormones are like that too. They cannot be constantly released. Yes, you can overdose. Oxytocin is pretty smart about its own body. It's probably less dangerous than almost any of the other molecules that we hear about or know about. In this, the tolerance, the range of tolerance is very broad. But still, you don't want to lose by turning down the receptor, which is what happens if you, after a while, if I keep saying, ah, you'll stop listening, and you will even stop hearing it. Well, that happens with the hormone receptors, too. The, the signal is no longer perceived, doesn't transmit information. And then, just as with opiates, you can't respond to the normal molecule you have to have more. And that's the last thing I want to see happening with oxytocin, is to turn it into the kind of medicine that we are now dependent on an outside source for. Well, I think in wrapping up that we go right back to what you said just before this, which is that, that the message is that it's this beautiful chemical that we're learning so much about naturally produced and that if there are ways the whole thing of abusing it or being desensitized to it that if we stay in the natural realm that we find it with gaze like you said music nature art pets it's infinite really when it comes to finding connection and in spiritually too you mentioned gatherings and awe so i think of safe spiritual communities that can kind of grow that feeling even group therapy that can kind of cultivate that with each other and as long as it's naturally produced you're going to be in pretty good shape i imagine yeah because it's not produced as a constant signal by the body 
it's produced in pulses, and those pulses allow the receptor to rest and to come back to normal function. That's why it's so hard. If the hormone is coming from the body, it's probably impossible to be yeah. too much. Because mm-hmm. it'll be in its natural rhythm. It'll, it'll rhythm, and the body will turn down the receptors and adjust. Imagine mm-hmm. a lot of little mm-hmm. dials. Different mm-hmm. tissues will use different amounts. So it's a beautifully designed system sculpted by this ancient evolutionary process. And, you know, I, I do think we have to be a bit cautious. I want to add one bit here. I think it can be used in medicine, but more as a primer than as a chronic treatment. And that's true of most good medicine. If you can quickly get to the system and then let the body go back to healing itself, I'm not saying that medicine's not available or good or useful. I'm just saying we need to understand it before we start mm-hmm. abusing or self-treating. Well, but even your description of that, it still goes back to that natural thing. It just, it might help open the door. I'm actually imagining in, in couples therapy, you know, if one person's more avoidant or, or just shut down, you know, like it just might, just might get a foot in the door, but it's not going to do the whole job. No. And I think if we understand how it works, we can probably get the same thing using behavior. It could be a shortcut for certain kinds of very serious illnesses. So it's very, very important to see the difference between acute experiences, one-time experiences, and chronic experiences. And that's where oxytocin in women, especially, or females, female mammals, I don't know about them, um, oxytocin may protect us from a sense of isolation or some of these kinds of shutdown effects that Dr. Porges talks about in polyvagal theory. But using a drug to do that, that's a whole other situation mm-hmm. that I'm cautious about. Some people say I'm too cautious, but that's my perspective. Well, I really like the message because it, going back to trust of our biology and trust of this, you know, million year old system that we're here for a reason and we can trust it. So as we wrap, if folks had questions, are you reachable or is there a website or a, for one thing, we can certainly, Dr. Porges has, he's been on before and I know many people are interested in his work and the two of you are connected. Of course, if you haven't picked up yet, if it's okay for me to say that uh, they're partners. uh, I've been married for 50 years. 50 years. That's awesome. Have a couple of kids that are growing and into the... 40-year-old and a 37, soon to be 37-year-old child. I'm not a clinician. I get the same kinds of questions over and over. What people can do is they can look for other talks that Steve Mm -hmm. and I have given together. We do a lot of webinars. You know, we've tried to answer most of those questions. I have I a very long review called Is Oxytocin Nature's Medicine? And I think they'll find all the technical questions are in there. And since I'm not a clinician, that's what I have to offer anyways, is my attempt to pull the science together and make some sense out of what I think is a pretty complicated and often misunderstood subject. They can look on Steve's website, stephenforges.com, and they'll find the talks we've given together. Some of them are sponsored by people who want to charge 
a little something to watch them. But a lot of it's open. We'll include the papers in the show notes and Dr. Porgia's website. What an incredible conversation, fact-packed, science-packed, but also this is the kind of science that can change people's lives. So we are so happy and honored to be in a position to bring you this. If you appreciate this kind of content, please rate us and review us on your favorite player, share the episode, and if you're really into it, we want to invite you to be part of our Patreon community. Join us as a neuro nerd at patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.